0: My name's is Glad Farrell. I've been coordinating with Extinction Rebellion from the outset, from when we launched. I guess that's the 31st of October 2018. I've got a background in educating on fashion, and the environment, and ethics and sustainability and also in the fashion sector, kind of trying to make change in that, in that industry before I spent all my time, like I do now, causing rebellion.
1: <laughs> Claire Farrell and I met to discuss her work as one of the founding members in Extinction Rebellion, now a global environmental movement. Alongside Greta Thunberg, they have helped force a conversation on climate change all over the world through direct action. Our original interview took place on the 5th of March 2020. Even then, weeks before a national lockdown was declared, neither of us quite realized the impact that the coronavirus pandemic would have, either in the terrible death tolls or on the impact on our lives and the wider climate movement. In the first half of this episode, you will hear the original conversation with Claire. We later caught up with Claire in september 2020 you can find the update in the second half of the episode in our first conversation we discussed extinction rebellion's plans for 2020 and the controversy surrounding their protest on the docklands light railway in october 2019. however the world feels like an incredibly different place from this time six months ago so we've chosen to focus the first half of this episode on what Claire told us in March about the action-based methods of Extinction Rebellion, on Claire's background as high street fashion designer turned sustainable fashion lecturer, and the campaigns that inspired her to become a full-time leader of rebellion. In the second half, you will hear Claire's point of view as climate activist on the pandemic and the plans for Extinction Rebellion going forward. This is Future Heist. Conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve Smith. Extinction Rebellion evolved from a group called Rising Up, and it's been a fantastic movement. It's really captured imaginations through mass participation exercises in civil disobedience. Last year in 2019, in April and in October, Extinction Rebellion occupied large parts of London. Extinction Rebellion have not just challenged the government, though, which is often the target of such actions. Extinction Rebellion occupied Greenpeace as well. Why do you think there's this urgency to challenge all levels of society, including people who are in the arena of making change like Greenpeace?
0: Uh, Because we're losing really badly. A lot of people believe that we've already lost that's how badly it is that we're losing. And I think looking around and seeing a world of sort of normality in the face of a looming scale of destruction, which is beyond the human imagination, knowing that and uh, trying to live your normal day-to-day life, it's very, very challenging for people who, who are sort of conscious of of what the science means, what the risk is. And so that's why we went to Greenpeace as a sort of hand on the shoulder of your mate saying, can we just have a chat about something? I really like you, don't worry, you're not in trouble, but <laughs> we, need, we should talk about this. To me, it spoke to looking at what is the third sector doing, what is the charity sector doing in this moment? I mean, it was one of our first actions. So that opening of going to Greenpeace, the wholesale disruption of the public, which comes when you shut down a city center, it has been criticized. But I was amazed at how well it went down in April. Because in April it felt so surprising and so sort of audacious that people weren't angry about it. They just sort of went, what's going on here? What? (laughs) And it was held with a kind of joy as well, which was our intention also in October. But of course the police changed tactics and took most of our equipment. They took our toilets, they... Arrested a kitchen sink. I mean they actually did do that. And uh, it's very hard to make it look joyful when it's lacking so much of the elements that that, that we need to to make it work. I know
1: that you're an arts coordinator for Extinction Rebellion and you've done a lot of design work around the movement. I'm sure you do a lot of other things in the movement. Can you describe what your what your roles are?
0: Well, I guess at the beginning we had a very small number of people doing everything, a bit like a start-up. So because my background in fashion um, design and there was a lot of like use of my network and my sort of skill set, I guess, to to do very practical stuff as well as working alongside an amazing design team who, to be honest, I don't really do the design work. I just sit with them and they do fantastic things. But of course, I have like an input and I've really thrown myself into into pretty much full time plus in, in working with Extinction Rebellion. And it's and it's interesting because as the movement expands and as it grows. And because we have this organising methodology, which we call the self-organising system, it can be very exciting and, and brilliant, and I think it hopefully means that it's resilient, but I think it also means that it, it can be quite challenging because it's challenging us on not knowing how to get decisions made when somebody's not in charge, and also go and do an impossible task, which is change everything, everywhere, really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> In the face of an absolutely massive threat. Yeah, looming apocalypse. From what I understand,
1: it's almost semi-autonomous where people can form action groups and go and create
0: an action themselves, is that right? Well, we call it a decentralised system. We've also called it in the past post-consensus. What that means is you don't have to sit the whole movement down and get everyone to agree before you can do something, which is very stifling to getting shit to happen so we have a set of principles and values there's 10 you can find them on our website and if you adhere to those you can be xr you don't have to sign up or pay we do encourage everybody to join their local groups and to do things together this isn't a diy movement it's a do it together movement so it's very much about accountability about collaboration it's, it's not restricted by like having to work in in absolute agreement with the other people What we've attempted to do is build something that can be a broad church because we recognise that this is, like, a big thing that needs doing and it's going to really require a lot of people. It's going to require huge numbers of people to do the work. It's going to require even bigger numbers of people to advocate for it and agree with it. So, for example, there's groups of XR scientists who are organising together and also they go and do direct actions together. They all wear white lab coats. Incidentally, the police hate arresting them they don't really want to go near them people are organizing around religion people are organizing themselves around color people are organizing themselves around all kinds of different things that they that they feel unite them for that to be able to take place you need just some grounding principles you need something really simple that people can adhere to and just know that they're doing the right thing and then you need to keep an eye on it so you know obviously if people go and set something on fire and run away then we, we, can, we can easily say, well, that's, that's not in line with our principles and values. We would never do that, and that's not us. And so far, I think that's worked really well in terms of the speed of the growth that you can have and also how easy it feels to offer to people to come into the space, basically.
1: I wanted to talk to you about extension Rebellion and the fashion industry as well. You're the founder of the label No Such Thing, which makes um, cycle wear. And part of the philosophy is a response to the fast-paced and wasteful nature of the fashion industry, designed to meet needs instead of creating them. Can you tell us about that philosophy?
0: As a designer, I guess I kind of didn't want to pander to the desires of a retail elite of buying teams, or I, I didn't really want to be involved in the sort of churning out of postmodern crap basically which is which is really what what the industry I've been part of is doing all the time sort of commodifying and cheapening and using anything really that that it possibly can find that feels untapped uh, in order to make a profit usually for ruthless horrible men <laughs> who tend to sit at the top of this chain I have to say for an industry that's full of amazing strong women that do brilliant work it is, I've mostly worked for companies that are making a fat horrendous man rich sorry blokes, I love men by the way um, <laughs> um, it, it was kind of something about leaving all of that stuff behind I and mean, as a designer I I felt really empowered I guess by the idea of moving into the mindset of a product designer rather than a fashion designer the first jacket that i designed you know it's made out of recycled material recyclable material it was um i designed so that it would be hopefully fully recyclable if it could go in fiber to fiber recycling haha there isn't any at scale by the way um <laughs> but uh but <laughs> But, um, but that was you know, it had it had polyester membrane that was breathable and waterproof and and I wanted to make something that just made it like more possible for you to ride your bike more often. I think I know lots of women who ride a bike, but if they're going to something important, they can't <laughs> it's like a man can show up looking like he's all sort of macho in his special sports outfit, which he really loves getting on, like a special suit, you know, it's like it's like it's like they can like sort of luxuriate themselves in this like pretense that it's uh that it's a sport and they've got all this special kit and, like, somehow that's quite macho. But if a woman arrives at work like that, most women, I think, feel way more self-conscious. So I just wanted to make something that helped me to feel like it was a normal thing to do, to ride a bike, to go and have interviews or to go and, like, do consultancy work or whatever and not to arrive going hi, I'm a fashion consultant, but don't look at my outfit, right? <laughs> like, Because that's the super bad way to enter the space.
1: Prior to that, you've worked for fashion brands including Ferrucci and One, and also some high street suppliers. So was there a sense that you were sick of the machine that is the fashion industry as it is now?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, I wrote at university about the impacts of fashion textiles. And then I thought... I'm going to have to go and sort of be someone before I can go and make a difference, because the fashion, the ethical fashion space at that time was almost sort of non-existent. With no experience as well, like, it would be really hard to get a job. I guess I sort of thought that it made sense to go and work commercially. That was great, because I got to learn loads about factories and how people get goods made and how they get supplied into the high street and what's the business model going on there and deal in depth with factories in in India and in Turkey and in China and it was a great sort of learning space. It was also a place with like the most rubbish culture to the work and where I sort of felt like I didn't really fit in, having already done lots of the research into like what the impacts were. It's really challenging. It makes you often. I, for me, it made me often feel like I was sort of forced to contort my own morals into a shape that I didn't recognise, just in order to go and get salary, and not even a very good salary <laughs> at that. So I think it's extremely difficult to to work within that within that space. And that's when I, when I left, I went and worked with my, um, with my business partner to be, Ning Castle at Good One and she'd started that out of university and we worked together showing at Fashion Week for many seasons so you know there I was making I was making good work that I was proud of but also we were making like no money, you either do something that you don't like and get paid or you do something you do like and you don't get paid that's how it, you know, that's how it kind of felt at, at that point but um, but it's definitely much more important to me to have an interesting life than than. Get rich, so that's well, a good job because I'm skin. <laughs> I'm definitely poor now. Um, I thought you were poor then. No. <laughs> Wait till you start going into rebellion.
1: So, what point did you quit doing that for time to go into X Rebellion? Was, it, was there a single point?
0: No. So, before XR started, I was already engaged in several other campaigns that were sort of like leading up to it, like I say, testing out tactics and stuff. At that point, I was kind of juggling some freelance clients and I was also doing some teaching, which I still do, teach a short course in sustainable fashion um, and sometimes go and do like various guest lecturing at different universities. And so I still do some teaching. So I still do have a have a life outside of XR, just, just about. Um, but I don't do any of the freelance work anymore always seen that part of the activism that i was doing for the sort of couple of years previous as as just being another job you know it's just another job it's unpaid but teaches you much more than having a normal job um like having a startup also teaches you much more than just having a any older kind of job yeah i've never learnt so much in my life as i have in the last sort of you know two years or so actually so that's cool
1: yeah that's amazing (laughs) and does it complement the teaching then
0: Yeah, I think it does. Sustainability as a field or as a concept, I think, quite quickly becoming irrelevant. I've always known that green capitalism is like a piss take. I didn't start a brand or run small businesses because I was misguided on that fact. I just didn't really quite know what else to do apart from be a bit of an anti-capitalist activist through the sort of anti-globalisation stuff in the 2000s and then try and work ethically and sustainable and change an industry that's immovable. So in some ways, I feel like the work that I'm doing now is, yeah, it's relevant to the teaching, but I think it's relevant to the teaching because it's it, it can help to transform beyond a paradigm of talking about sustainability. And that's where the teaching needs to go in order to be useful. And I've not really found the language or the approach previous to seeing what's happening right down now with the with the energizing of the movements and all of the activities. I think we're in a we're in the midst now of a period of social change and but I hope that it's going to move us through to a place where we're able to think much more imaginatively and much more radically about what we do so that we're not sort of tied down by you know ideas about making plastic bottles into dresses or being able to reprocess some cotton garments into some new viscose or whatever I mean it's as interesting as the circular conversation is I think within the design world and within design thinking there's a real urgent need for people to go hey see that circular economy stuff you're still trying to do it inside growth-based capitalism and that's obviously a problem to go further than that, but think about different ways of, of recognizing value, different ways of exchange, and also introducing this idea of regeneration. And so I think that's part of our challenge going ahead in education and also within education within XR as well, in thinking about how we, how we think about this regenerative stuff that we need to engineer.
1: I wanted to ask you how you got involved in activism in general in the sense that was what, what was the first campaign that captured your imagination
0: I started doing activism in inverted commas I guess in probably about 2002 or three and that was when I met somebody who introduced me to a group called the space hijackers I went along to some meetings and we it was like a sort of secret agent organisation, it was very funny. Yeah, we went out and did disruptive things in public space, but it wasn't it wasn't pointed like this going like let's block roads and do XYZ and see if it gets Y result or or whatever. It was much more about challenging people's perception of what they were doing in a public place and why, drawing people's attention to different issues, have parties on circle line trains, reclaim public spaces talk to people about public and private ownership of city space um access to space all of that stuff so it was kind of anti-capitalist and looking at architecture and city planning and all of that kind of stuff but it was like most of all it was funny actually and we we had through great parties and did sort of idiotic things and thought it was really fun (laughs) (laughs) that Um, sounds amazing so yeah it was good (laughs) they were they were good days and we were like oh the world's so bad you know it's got all these problems i look back at it now i'm just like god we were having such a laugh and like everything was a bit bad but it really wasn't that bad you know just it's got so much worse uh... <laughs> yeah. and then and then from so where did you go
1: from there then from organizing parties on on <laughs> circle line trains what was your what was your kind of journey from there
0: I guess I got really busy doing all this stuff with with Good One and trying to run a small business. I mean, all of that stuff just made me super busy. I definitely had a bit of a break in that sense and uh, and then I was like really thinking, what's the next thing? And I'd started this project with my friend Miles called Body Politic, which was about like wearing messages and embodying struggle and stuff. So I guess I had this on the side, but then that was kind of the beginning of of, of doing some work which naturally led into working with my friends Charlie and Clive on design work and and then that all of that work forming the basis for the art department at XR so it feels like it's been a fairly sort of like natural process or organic sort of journey in a way how can people support you and what you do I think the first thing that people should consider doing if they want to help me, (laughs) which sounds really weird, is to go and join your local XR group for a meeting, go and speak to the people there and find out how fabulous they are. And they're just really full of amazing people. So you could do that and that would be nice for you as well as good for me. We're really struggling for money at the moment. So if anyone... If you know anyone rich send them to send them to Extinction Rebellion, um, if they want to make any donations, um, I think you can donate through our website. You'll find a route to do that. You should be able to find your local groups as well on the website's rebellion.earth. There's also an international site if you're not in the UK. It's rebellion.global and that has a an interactive kind of map. You should be able to find even a tiny regional local group through a, a pin that's shown on the map visually, and then that'll link you through to if they've got a website or a Facebook page or a Twitter thing or whatever. And obviously you can follow us on social media and that's also, as the organisation is, quite sprawling. So there's a UK Twitter feed, there's a global Twitter feed. You'll probably find a regional one. You might find a local group one. If you have a special interest or... You identify with a certain group, then look that up, because you might find Facebook or Twitter or Instagram you might find for XR families or um, I know there's a budding XR mothers group. There's Christians, Jews, XR Muslims. There's teachers, lawyers, doctors, scientists, (laughs) all of the things. Boycott fashion group, look them up. They're they're, they're the best, (laughs) obviously.
1: (laughs) Do you have any recommendation for people who are looking to read or watch something to get inspired, something that's inspired you in the past?
0: Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really present that I'd recommend people look up is a podcast, which is by the Climate Psychology Alliance, and they are super duper people who have been setting themselves up in in order to support people in movements and in order to also look really really hard at how to support young people and probably also each other I mean there are you know we I, I know from speaking to people that work in this sort of therapeutic world that There are therapists who haven't been paying attention to this issue, you know, and they're suddenly going, oh, shit, (laughs) how do I help someone if I haven't actually fronted up to this myself? This is really scary. So they're doing incredible work. They make a really, really interesting podcast, and I'd really recommend that you listen to that.
1: How can people get involved more generally if they're reading about climate change, they're worried about what the future holds, what can people do to get involved?
0: I would say that there are uh, many, many aspects to what needs to happen. And some of it, some of the main bulk of the work for me is existential in nature. And I think that we live in a kind of death phobic culture. We sort of hide birth the same way that we hide death. And a lot of cultures in the world would find that quite disturbing actually (laughs) just to sort of pretend that you just magically exist and then one day you disappear but nobody knows how it happens um (laughs) and I know that birth and death is a bit like that but if you've never been close to it or been able to sort of confront it I do think it's um I do think it changes your, your outlook rather. We're in this kind of position of, of great risk and so I guess what I want people to do more than anything is face their own mortality, then decide to live their life in line with some values which are probably values that are not very easy to live by because of the system that we're in. So I know that sounds like a bit of an impractical response. <laughs> How can people get more involved? Go <laughs> have an existential crisis. And I think from that place, you can make different decisions about, about what you want to do with your life. And the other thing I think which is really easy to do, self-education, in terms of the, the impact that we've had on the climate, but more importantly, I think, on biodiversity loss and the loss of the reduction in biomass around the world. You know, uncover that, read it and, and cry. I think it would be good. It'll be be good. You'll be glad you got a head start if you start grieving now, that's what I
1: think. You'll now hear an update Claire gave us on Extinction Rebellion on the 15th of September 2020, when they were in the midst of a national relaunch. They had organised coordinated actions in London, Cardiff and Manchester, and they hit headlines when they stopped headlines by disrupting newspaper distribution at a national print works, resulting in empty newsstands across the country. And, true to the ever-changing nature of things in 2020, this second conversation was recorded just before the government announced figures indicating the threat of a second wave of coronavirus in the UK. In this half, we discuss how global pandemics like coronavirus are the result of environmental destruction, The impact of Black Lives Matter on Extinction Rebellion and why it's ever more urgent to fight to halt climate catastrophe in a world changed forever by the global pandemic. Extinction Rebellion, so the first I saw was a poster calling for people to demonstrate on the 1st of September in in Parliament Square and there's been a number of rebellions since since then including blockading newspaper distribution. And I just wanted to ask about the decision to kind of relaunch around now and how that's been going.
0: We did have a rebellion planned for the spring, actually, this year, which all got knocked down the road because of COVID. And so I guess running an on the streets kind of rebellion phase now is was really about thinking that we don't want to lose 2020 just because people have been on lockdown doesn't mean the ice sheets aren't. Falling to fucking pieces, does it? (laughs) It's quite scary. This is the 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 crisis that we've got to move back into, paying attention to really quite quickly. What kind of things did? How did you go about planning this
1: reawakening of the of the conversation around climate change?
0: Well, there had been people talking for quite a long time about blockading the press, which was obviously the sort of big action of this rebellion. We opened the Rebellion on September the 1st with a very large kind of sit-down on Parliament Square. There was going to be an opportunity for people to do something fairly entry-level, if you like, <laughs> i.e. just sit in the road together. People weren't doing anything too high-profile or high-risk, and it given us an opportunity to host speakers that we wanted to platform. Last time we went out, we had a lot of different sites and people trying to hold them overnight. So we also didn't want to do that because... We felt we'd done it and it's quite resource intensive. It exhausts people quite a lot. So there was a decision taken that we would do lots of dispersed actions and as well with the aim of kind of telling a story, which I think we've been more successful with this time than ever before. So we did um, close the road at Tufton Street. It's right around the corner from Westminster. And there are two addresses there, 55 and 57. um, And they're the home of think tanks, like Global Warming Policy Foundation, who are notorious climate deniers. And now that they're not allowed to be climate deniers because nobody will talk to them if they are, they're the people who say, yeah, it's real and it is serious, but also chill out. (laughs) Don't worry about it too much. And so a lot of these are very much embedded in neoliberalism and the pushing forward of lobbying an ideology that supports big business and it's a bit of a revolving door between them and government as well and that felt like it was really sort of pointing to a place which people don't know very much about which is a bit of a shady piece of the story if you like and then obviously later on we did the the blockade happened at the at the print works which we knew when we looked at the schedule of of all of the different actions we knew that that was going to be quite a sort of focus of the rebellion. I have to say ever since that happened, the press and the government completely closed ranks. They've been absolutely horrendous to us. I mean, if you poke the hornet's nest that's got Rupert Murdoch in it, then what do you expect? I know it's not like a surprise, but certainly that's been the main focus. So the question of whether we have a free press or not is a really, really serious question that needs to be asked because they're not helping to educate the public. Nor is the BBC properly, even though that's our own public service broadcaster, supposedly. Yeah, I think in that way managing to tell those stories is, is uh, through the actions has been one of the one of the main differences.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's true what you say about you know, oh, some people might say, oh, you, you should expect the press to close ranks with the government. Well, in some ways, it's to be expected, but in other ways, it's very depressing to see, to to have it revealed exactly how it works, right? And to have that kind of, yeah. that relationship really hammer home. And like you say, there's just this massive need to tell the truth right now, uh, to borrow an XR phrase. Coronavirus has been linked to the way that society and industry has imposed on wildlife and on the natural world To what extent for you is this global pandemic a massive... It's not either or, it's a part of the climate crisis that we're in.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess you've watched that David Attenborough programme that everyone's going crazy about, but I'm really glad that he's brought that message in such a sort of flagship show, mainstream way to the fore, because it's very clearly outlined in that show, that the more that we enter into wild places, deep forests, the more we disturb um, the, the, the untouched, not that there's hardly any of that left, but the, the more untouched areas of like really, really rich biodiversity, and the closer that we come to, what's the word I wanna use, imposing our presence on those, on those wild spaces, And on those wild ecosystems and the more that we do like intensive factory farming that is all linked to like the spread of of global pandemics and so I believe that pretty much every pandemic that the world has ever known that human beings have ever suffered has come from the way that we're dealing with the natural world and the way that we're interacting with animals and particularly the way that we're either keeping livestock or trading in wild animals. And I think that combination is, is, is be- going to become, hopefully, more and more clear, combined with the fact that we know in a warmer world that there's more transmission of disease We know that when there's like more flooding and there's more waterborne disease is going to travel more. On a hotter planet, we're going to experience diseases in colder countries that used to only exist in hotter ones. So getting people's heads around the fact that like there's a human health crisis angle to the climate crisis, as well as all of the other factors that we normally talk about, I think it's much lesser understood. Um, And I think the other thing is about preparation, because... What we've been saying is the government's failed to mitigate, but it's also not fucking prepared for what it's like creating as the inevitable outcome of not doing anything. So we can also understand that in, in quite short real time because of COVID. Like, yes, we had a brilliant pandemic plan in the UK, one of the world's best plans, I think, which other countries have followed and had a great success. We wrote one of the best plans. We didn't fucking use it. So we weren't prepared at all. And, and we know that there's like a prediction of way more pandemics to come and that it's right at the top of the list of risks to the UK in terms of security and threats to health. And yet we our government have just completely ignored it and not prepared at all. And something interesting that Noam Chomsky was talking about why America wasn't prepared. And I guess, you know, we're not we're not there yet with our NHS, but it is it is moving in entirely in that direction, like a market-based health system can't be prepared because it's never going to be financially beneficial for you to be prepared for something that might not happen, right? So the, the health system in the, in the United States, basically by its structure and by its ideological and philosophical setup, cannot be well-prepared for something like this. And so arguably that's what you can look at the sort of the essence of neoliberalism is basically completely defunct in the face of this kind of a threat. And now we're facing loads of them. So I I, I hope that people are able to kind of reflect on it in that way. I guess the other thing that for me coronavirus has shown us in real time, which is extremely valuable if people would stop to look at it, is to understand the exponential function. Because it's something that human beings can't grasp very easily, and I know I can't when I look at like climate figures and I look at like carbon emissions or temperature increase or loss of Arctic ice or whatever it is. And you look at this kind of exponential pattern and you think, I just can't. Once it starts to go almost straight up, I can't, like, I can't understand it. The figures become sort of meaningless, don't they? And we, we've just lived through watching something in real time that has that property. And I don't really know quite what I think about that yet, but I think there's definitely something... Interesting. There's definitely something interesting about going, right, I've just lived through short term view of of exponentiality. That's what it means. And perhaps if we're really unlucky, we're about to see it again because we might we might handle a second wave quite badly. But I don't I don't know. And during the pandemic,
1: there was ideas that circulated online. There was kind of these tweets along the lines of the world is healing. We are the virus. For example, there were images of dolphins in the canals of Venice and aerial photographs of cities with cleaner air. Now, some of those images, it did turn out were fake, but there was still this idea that that human beings are the problem on planet Earth. I was just wondering what you thought of that idea that humans are bad for the planet. And do you think they're the problem or do you think it's the way that society is organized which can be reimagined?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you raise that because I know there's a lot of people who've talked around these messages being sort of the lean towards eco-fascism, basically, and like if you just wipe some people out, then the world will heal itself and everything will be happy. I, I don't, I don't know whether I find it so easy to describe them as sort of proto-fascist because. It's true that if people leave the land alone it recovers right it's true, it's true that like if you wrest the world from our exploitation and our extraction and our destruction then then it does heal itself but um, but it's also true that people can can do that less and still survive we don't need to be destroying things as, as rampantly as we are you know it's it is much safer to talk about how the systems that we used to organize our societies are actually the problem it's quite clear that some of the power structures are the problem it's quite clear that the economics is the problem it's quite obvious to me that the media is the problem because it stops people from understanding what the problems are because they refuse to educate people on them so yeah i think that's i think that was really interesting the emergence of that and it feels to me like you know if that is if that is a dangerous narrative if that is an anti-human narrative it it was interesting to watch how sort of easily that gets picked up and not questioned by the average person. Whereas within lots of circles of very vigilant people in the green movement and activists who would pick that stuff apart and go, what's actually going on here? Is this alarming? Is this really worrying? And do we need to act against it? What should we be saying in the face of it? But I think for the average person on the street that just felt like, oh yeah, that's great. There's like wild animals walking through the city. How great, you know that's funny, or that's interesting, or like, oh yeah, we're really bad. And yeah, you know, it's, it's perfectly possible for people to live in greater harmony with nature. You don't need to go on lockdown to solve the climate crisis. <laughs> I think the other thing about about the carbon emissions coming down was the thing I was the most interested in, because I thought immediately when it said, you know, oh, people in um, China have got these like, much cleaner skies because of covid lockdown and so their carbon emissions are down and then lots of people were saying to me oh you must be really happy about this pandemic because it's reduced people's emissions and again that's you know it's not just a massive oversimplification that implies that it would be good to lock people in their homes for the majority of the time in order to deal with this which is not a good solution but it's also we've turbocharged the economy with bailouts at the end of this crisis, which has just doubled down on making things worse. And actually, you know, the, the money, the public money that's been used to bolster those industries would have been really hard to fundraise for because people don't want to invest in fossil industry right now as much as they perhaps once did. And so our government in the UK have particularly bailed out industries that would find it harder to fundraise now and they've been given hundreds of millions or billions of pounds yeah it's catastrophic actually for the environment and so when people say oh you must be pleased it's been like reduced carbon emissions it's it's reduced carbon emissions like about i think it's either one third or two thirds of what we need to do each year for the next 10 years it it shows us the scale of what we're not doing and then we just make it loads fucking worse so it's actually been disastrous on 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 every front i think that's
1: a it's really extreme example what you say there about you know oh you must be really pleased that there's a global pandemic like of course not but of course we had like last december we had the wildfires in australia and now we've got wildfires in the us and do you think between those times a large chunk of that's been the pandemic do you think there has been a shift in consciousness or perspective around the climate crisis during lockdown. I'm thinking, for example, that because of lockdown, people did live differently and there was discussions around how we could maybe live differently.
0: Well, I don't know if you saw the polling that was being pushed out by Sky yesterday, I think, and today, but basically saying that, you know, 65% of the UK public think that COVID's more important than climate change, which is extremely unhelpful poorly pitched set of questions basically which obviously is potentially going to give you a result that makes people think oh yeah everyone else doesn't care about climate change which is just not true because the polling before covid was that everyone's fucking seriously concerned about climate change and wants to see more than what they're seeing out of the government um and that's quite clear that that was where we started from and i don't think that that's gone away actually i guess what i think it's done in some ways is it's brought a lot of people quite close to their own mortality it's put the whole world in a similar situation where we're all facing a common threat that people that's quite immediate of course there's like differences between your health service or how likely you are to avoid it or whether you get put on furlough on lockdown or whether you're still banged up in a hot factory working away which by the way still happened here um, in Leicester in some garment factories where they got COVID, but it it did bring a sort of sense of everyone's experiencing something at the same time, which can never happen with wildfires, it can never happen with floods, doesn't happen with extreme weather. It's that in the face of an existential risk, which is here and somewhere else as well, that we could act swiftly on it in order to save lives no matter the fact that our government fucked it up quite badly and could definitely have done a much better job and are probably due a corporate manslaughter case in court, um, that's, you know, that's just, has shown us that something's possible. And, And that something that's possible is pretty major, right? Like, you don't leave your house, no one travels, the planes are grounded, nobody's going shopping, all the shops are shut. I don't know about you, but I cycled into like towards the West End um, at some point when all the shops were closed just to see what it was like and I cycled for Oxford Circus at the same time as the year before we'd had it closed down in April with our boat and everyone at that point was going you can't close this junction and the shops are losing money and blah blah blah. And to see all those shops locked and empty and lights off at the same time, just a year later, because of an existential threat, I thought was extremely um, interesting and in some way should be heartening, shouldn't it? Because we can just change shit like that <laughs> if we decide to. It just proves to you that like, We're just literally not deciding to do this. It's a choice. Everything about climate change is just a choice.
1: Another thing that happened this year and saw massive mobilizations on the streets was the Black Lives Matter movement. Has the narrative around Black Lives Matter, has that influenced Extinction Rebellion at all? The fact that climate crisis is so much worse in the global south and there've been migrants who've had to flee their home because of because of climate crisis. So I'm thinking about that. And then I'm also thinking about more generally the Black Lives Matter movement, which was, of course, sparked by the death of George Floyd. Has it uh, it affected the, the Extinction Rebellion movement at all?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's affected us massively because it's opened a sort of quite a transformative impact on broader society, I think. I know that Extinction Rebellion has been widely criticised on matters of, of race and inclusivity and whether we've done enough to reach enough different communities and speak to enough of a diversity of people in the UK. Building working relationships with various different communities, particularly marginalised communities, when you do have like a lot of middle-class people in a movement, which is just true. XR is that. We're not exceptional in the green movement. I, do, I, I don't think that's a stick to beat ourselves with necessarily but it does mean that like it takes some time to build up trust with working class people with people of color and it's not to say that they haven't always been there as well but they've not been necessarily feeling like they're prominent enough like we've platformed people enough like we've found enough ways to show the diversity of the movement and then increase the diversity of the movement so that work's been going on in the background I mean ever since we started we connected with lots and lots of different groups. But I think building the Working Trust up reached a really good point just sort of shortly after lockdown was lifted. We, I don't know if you saw, but we we did a reparations rebellion in Brixton with an African reparations movement, Stop the Mangamese. That was really an amazing opportunity that we arranged together to be able to show on the ground in real life solidarity, where lots of Extinction Rebellion activists came in support to block roads or to to engage in civil disobedience basically alongside these other groups who are campaigning for reparations for African people. And so it felt really good to have that take place and to go out and to talk about what it actually really means to do acts of solidarity rather than just talking. There's only so much talking you can do and Exile has always been a very sort of like action focused kind of movement. I guess the other thing about the BLM stuff was that we, obviously lots of groups around the UK attended BLM protests. We all went out without our flags, without our banners because, you know, it's not our space. But then we had people going like, where are you? And it's like, well, we're just on the street, (laughs) just looking like normal person who's part of the march. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not doing anything um, to, to, to make this about us. So that was also something quite difficult to, to to move through because the critique comes whether you whether you carry the banner or whether you don't take the banner but I know in some parts of the country they've had like a huge success with collaborating on the ground we've offered I think we've had behind the scenes quite a bit of support on, on police liaison and lawyers and legal contacts and in Brighton they did some collaborative protests where they made joint banners so it says BLM and Extinction Rebellion working together so in some places Because it's quite grassroots as well, the connections, in some places there's very explicit connection and in other places there's behind-the-scenes support uh, and in other places there's people pointing out as going, you're still not there on the BLM protests, but really loads of us are. (laughs) So it's kind of, uh, you know, nothing simple. It's an ongoing piece of work takes quite uh, quite a long time and you've got to build up trust. It's trust-based and uh, you just can't rush that.
1: I've been thinking about it recently because of the... The migrant crisis as well which of course the tories kind of ramped up attention on the the migrants who have been arriving recently and it felt like a real attempt to distract us from coronavirus but of course so many of those migrants are, are climate refugees basically and and that's bound to get worse as as time goes on
0: i think what was interesting after that print works action actually was that whilst um whilst the the elites were like, you know, frothing at the mouth over what we'd done and how outrageous it was and saying like, it's disgraceful, we shouldn't be out doing protests. They had nothing to say about the people who blockaded the port of Dover to try and keep migrants out. That's basically a bunch of far right activists taking taking on civil disobedience, like against refugees, basically. So there's no opinion about that. No one said anything about it, but they were they were very upset about us being protesting again. So you know it shows there's only a handful of people who spoke out about that, like Diana. But but otherwise, that protest largely sort of got ignored. I don't like the idea of people using um using direct action against the vulnerable and the marginalised and and the and the people that deserve our support.
1: Exactly. <laughs> at all. We're talking now just before London Fashion Week. And we talked a lot last time about fashion because, of course, that's your background, that's the industry I work in. And during the pandemic, I mean, you mentioned it before, the hierarchy in fashion was revealed in instances like workers not being paid, both overseas and here in the UK in Leicester. Fashion Week this season is taking place in a reduced format, but there's still a sense that the fashion industry is trying to get back to business as usual before long. I wanted to ask what you think about still making a
0: target of the fashion industry? What I do know that the fashion team have been working on is two things. One is to produce a video of the letter that they wrote to fashion, which I don't know if you've seen that, but it's a really fantastic piece of work. If you scroll back through their Instagram feed, you'll find it probably quite quickly. Dear fashion, we hear you. So it took some of the most extraordinary things that have been said by people in the industry, by people like, Caroline Rush, Mark Jacobs, various different designers and all of the kind of outrage and concern and disgust in a way, actually, from some of those people that are saying like, we've got, we make all this shit and it's not, there's no one even to buy it. What are we doing? This is a waste. We need to turn this around. We've destroyed the planet. And for what? Like, da, da, da. And so it's quote after quote after quote after quote lined up. And then directed back at the industry to just say, this is the kind of shit you guys are saying. And then like, what's changing here? So they're going to make that into a video, which I think is going to be really, really powerful. And later this year, or maybe early next year, I think we I think we maybe see them push it a little bit further into the distance so they've got more time to organise. But they're hoping to set up um, a global assembly. So like a people's assembly for stakeholders in the industry to sit around together and discuss what can be done and this is a big challenge because we've got to be determined that it's not another talking shop we've got to be determined that it's not got the influence of brands over the outcome which the majority of these things usually have so much involvement from corporate money and sponsors and people who need to be kept happy who show up that they can't actually have like a truly truly radical conversation And what I'm excited about is that between us, we've all got like quite good networks through different parts of the industry. So like I would like to see a fashion journalist sit down next to a machinist, sit down next to a pattern cutter, sit down next to like someone who works in a warehouse for Boohoo or whatever, you know, to have these different people from these different parts in the industry and for once for them all to be in one place together, talk about what the actual problems are and see where that conversation takes them because I'm pretty sure when it's not just like executives and senior designers and posh people on big salaries having clever conversations, I'm pretty sure something very different can take place. That will be called something like Fashion Act Now. And it was going to be in October, but I think it will happen a little bit later. So maybe early next year. But watch their um, Instagram for, for updates on that. I think it will be really interesting. And of course, Uh, You'll be so welcome to come if you want, (laughs) Rina.
1: That'd be amazing! Oh my God, that'd be so cool. That sounds like such a good good idea. As you say, getting people who are normally nowhere near each other to actually talk about and have different perspectives and, you know, all the rest of it come together.
0: It's kind of like what we wanted to demand that Fashion Week was cancelled, to be replaced with an assembly. And I guess in the spirit of XR, you know, if we don't get our demands met, we just try and meet them ourselves. Yeah, it's wildly ambitious. And I think they've got quite a bit of fundraising to do in the run up to it to try and get enough money just to help them use the use the best kind of digital platform and stuff because people will be all over the world and bringing people together. But yeah, I think it will be really exciting. Fashion
1: leaders and people in fashion have been talking all kinds of talk about change and activism and what the world should look like and you know what needs to change. But it feels like there's a disconnect between that and then what like retailers are doing and where things might actually go. And it, to you, like when you've seen those things being said, has that felt very surface to you? Or have you ever thought, oh, maybe this might actually lead somewhere. Maybe these people are serious about changing.
0: I don't think that they've accidentally said such extreme things. You know, some of the, When you read that letter, you'll be like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it, it is literally people like Mark Jacobs say, like, why are we making all this fucking shit? It's pointless. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I do, I do think that people are in that place where they've woken up and they've realized that it is, you know, is a pointless waste of resources. And there's really no reason to like, destroy civilized life to make clothes, right? So I think they've woken up, but I think what they haven't got is like any guts yet. So I just don't feel like things are moving because I don't think people dare to have the conversations about what actually needs to give. And you know, what needs to give is like we need an entirely new economy and a totally new paradigm. But the more that people are like ready for something like huge change, the better. So I do find it quite heartening because they say they sound outraged. They don't sound interested in sustainability. I mean, maybe they are going to go, oh, and let's just do a bit of sustainability, and then I'll be extremely disappointed. But the way they've been talking during COVID is, you know, is is, is quite interesting, and it gives you something to like hold a mirror up to them and say, "You just said this, so now what are you going to do about it?" You know. <laughs> so yeah, I, I guess I think we're in we're in interesting times, but as many people as we can get to like continue to to draw attention to to the fact that stuff needs to change and and everybody's actually been made really much poorer and much less happy by the way that the system is set up the more people who are sort of screaming that from the rooftops and causing as much trouble as possible (laughs) there's needs to be plenty more disruption and still there needs to be plenty more lifting up of like those voices that we don't normally hear and i think this is again where like the black lives matter but the re-emergence of that and the empowerment that people feel through that and the bolstering of people's ability to, to to talk about things like refugee crisis to talk about how abjectly racist our industry is to talk about the fact that it's built on colonialism and slavery and all of this sort of toxicity which is what we sort of grew the current system out of all of that gross violence you know the opportunity that's in front of us where people are quite sort of awake to that to to see that as like a possible as an opportunity for us to have like really really rapid transformative conversations and actions that that people are going to not be able to sort of retract back into or we do a bit of diversity work here we do a bit of sustainability work over here but i think you know there's a there's a space that's opened up where particularly young people Who've got roles in industry can hold people really to account and say, "No, your diversity and inclusion policy is shit. The way that you treat these people is shit. The salary <laughs> differentiation is fucking shit." And you know, by the way, you're like destroying the planet. And what are we going to do about that? Yeah, I think it, I think it's really interesting times, basically. <laughs>
1: If you've been inspired by this episode, find your local branch of Extinction Rebellion from Algeria to Zambia on the website rebellion.global. Find out more or donate to Extinction Rebellion's Fashion Action Group at fashionactnow.org and follow them on social media. Search Fashion Act Now. Future Heist is recorded and produced by me, Reena Neve-Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassi, artwork by Fleur Beck, and sound editing by Gibran Farah. Ben Weaver-Hinks is our podcast consultant and Charlotte Watts, our social media editor. You can find original illustrations for Future Heist by Charlotte on social media. Follow us at future underscore heist on Instagram and Twitter or Future Heist Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. You can find a transcript for this episode on journalist.com forward slash podcast. Special thanks to Chloe Vasegi. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.